0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
1: It's our pesky little brains' obsession with instant rewards and and dopamine, and it always wants to choose the path that it knows the best, which is usually like bad habits. Um, and it wants to choose the thing that gives it that little hit. And so it knows that your brain knows the thing that would be good for me is probably actually something that doesn't feel good right now will be good in the long term like having an early night.
2: Hello beautiful and welcome to the self-love club the podcast chatting about stuff that matters created and hosted by me podcaster Belle Crawford. On the show we're joined by counsellor, self-development coach and best-selling author Rebecca Bella also known as Bex. Now Bex started sharing her drawings and strategies on her Instagram journey to wellness to help others with their mental health and has since grown a following of over 363,000. Vex has released her fifth book, "Be Your Best Self," which has been my bedtime read. I love it, and provides strategies to change the way we see ourselves and improve our mental well-being. We chat about the inner critic, perfectionism, limiting beliefs, and ways to recognize and challenge unhelpful thinking plus overwhelm and how to soothe our nervous system. Get ready to learn some helpful hacks of how to squeeze more self-care into your day. Before we get into it, please subscribe or follow The Self Love Club on your podcast app now and follow us at Podcast on Instagram. Here's my conversation with Bex. Bex, welcome to The Self Love Club. Thank you so much for coming to hang out with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's awesome. I love it.
2: Yeah. Now, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do.
1: So, um, I'm a counsellor by training. Um, That's sort of where I've come from. And what I do now is really bizarrely different from what I ever thought that I would be doing. But it's sort of a combination of coaching, of writing books and creating resources. And I run, um, predominantly, it's an online Sort of membership program or and there's lots of courses and classes and things that i take um online so, so that's sort of what i'm doing now i'm just um i'm from nelson i i've lived in nelson my whole life and um yeah just a, a mum to a three and a half year old wee girl and um someone who loves Warm fuzzy socks and Kmart too much. That pretty much sums me up.
2: (laughs) Oh, we love it. We love a little Kmart run and you you go in there for like a three (laughs) dollar pair of socks and you come out with a trolley full of all this good stuff. Yeah. Every time. (laughs) Cool. We're gonna go through your work, your latest book, everything soon. But take us back. You grew up in Nelson, beautiful place. I know everyone's like, oh, Sunny Nelson, but it really is so nice. And how did you know you wanted to be a counselor? How did you get into doing that?
1: I think I probably was being steered that direction from like a really, really early age. Um, I think my very first school report when I was five said that I showed um, kind of bizarre levels of empathy for someone my age. Uh, You know, in growing up, um, there was quite a lot of uh, mental health struggles going on around me. So my mum had um, anxiety, agoraphobia, panic, postnatal depression. It was in an era where people didn't really Uh, there was more stigma and so she didn't seek any help or support until i was about 10 years old so i think for really quite a lot of my life i knew that uh it was important to me to work in this space i started studying psychology and things like that um early it wasn't until sort of my early 20s that i went into my bachelor's i just sort of needed some time to, to dabble in a few different things and. Um, and since then, I've just been doing lots of different postgraduate um, sort of training and, and specialty sort of branching into more somatic practice work and nervous system work. And so, um, yeah, it's just a lifelong love affair, I think.
2: Yeah, and talk us to us about that because you were obviously would have been seeing people studying, and then, and I believe it was 2018. You know, you started your illustrations and that sort of part of your journey to wellness all grow. so how did that all start?
1: That was a really kind of bizarre accident in a lot of ways um, because I, I've never done art or it's never been an intention of mine to sort of be an artist but I was working at the time um, I started on I think 2015 working in a, a high school in a college um, as a counsellor so seeing sort of people between the ages 13 18 and I was finding that quite often that is the case with anyone who feels dysregulated or under a lot of stress is you can go through um, some tools or a new way of doing something in a counseling session with a therapist and then when you get out there in the real world and there's real triggers and the stress is there it's hard to remember what it is that you thought you were going to do and often those tools just go out the window because they're not habits yet and so I thought how can I kind of create a space where people are able to reference back to these tools in a really quick, easy visual way. So they're not having to sort of read a book or do something like that. So I thought if I just start doodling some of these concepts down and I'll pop them on Instagram, everyone uses Instagram. That's all that was ever meant to be was just a space for my clients to pop in and have a look at some of the things that we'd been doing in sessions. And then it just, it just snowballed. It was really this crazy thing. I guess Instagram was different back then as well, but sort of within a year, it was sort of 50, 60,000 followers. Um, It just kept growing. A publisher found me. That's where the books came from. Uh, And now it's sitting at just about 360,000. It's just, it's so crazy. It's just Mm. exploded, which is awesome because people are kind of connecting with it.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. And it's great to see what you've built and you're able to help probably way more people than you were able to before. That's the beauty of an online space rather than you know the number of clients you would have been able to see one-to-one. So, And it has been a really, I mean, mental health is always something that people struggle with. It's part of something we always have, just like we have our physical health. But particularly over the last few years, I think pages like yours have been so needed with what everyone's been going through you know globally at the same time
1: yeah for sure there is so much stress and dysregulation and just when it feels like it's starting to come back everything else piles in and everything starts up again or just when we feel like we're getting a little moment to take a breath it's like all that anxiety catches up with you and you find yourself in this sort of chronic pattern of stress and anxiety and then feeling really flat and stuck and unmotivated and there's just so much of it um but the beauty is that yes people are kind of becoming really aware of all the different kinds of ways that they can help themselves and there's there's so much more out there i think um after everything kind of locked down and everyone went online there's this this new kind of world of resources that have opened up and in many ways it's amazing because it, it's made things a lot more accessible than they probably were before.
2: People probably are talking about these things more you know it's okay and accepted in society to talk about your anxiety I mean of course there's always going to be stigmas but I think previously online and it still is a highlights reel it's really cool to see these pages come up and the illustrations sort of because I share a lot of them as well in my work, and you know, they really started to grow and and really help in that way. And people were, yeah, these are cool. I'll share these. You know, not ashamed of it.
1: Mm, I love that, and I'm. That's a, one of the pieces of the the page or or my work for me as well as being really honest about what my own journey with anxiety and panic and all of those things is you know, and on a daily basis, if I'm having a hard day, I'll often share about that and what I'm doing because I don't, I think it's really important. We don't think people have these glossy, perfect lives, even those people who are in the wellness industry still struggle and we've still had our our times. And I think it is so important that we normalize all of that. Like wellness doesn't mean you're just happy all the time.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting line because people sort of, I mean, I I think we all experience that where we don't want to be a burden we just carry on we're just trying to get on with it but it can be really hard and you don't want to be seen I know for myself I'll overthink and be like oh I don't want them to think that I can't do this or I'm not capable because I'm you know not feeling great today because we can still do our work we still get on with it a lot of the time or whatever but it is kind of hard working out how to say it without people you worrying what people are going to think you know so how do you sort of bring it up to people if you're not feeling that great
1: I'm just super, super honest about it. But also there is an element, and you have to be mindful of what you're saying. It's like, we don't have to share everything either. You know, it's like we have these different masks that we wear in different elements of our day, like the mum mask and the person at work mask and the friend mask. and They're all still us, um, but it is okay to sort of filter what information people get based on do they have the right and the privilege to know that about you. And so I do pick who I share the depths of things Mm. with um but I think I do think it's important to be able to say as well hey this is where I'm at and maybe this is what I need as a result of it so if I was doing that in a work context or something like that I might not necessarily go into all the nitty-gritty but I might own hey I'm in this space this is what I'm going to do around that. Can you support that?
2: Yeah. Now tell us about your latest book, uh, Be Your Best Self. You were saying before that for you, this is actually a bit of a vulnerable one. You know, you're feeling a bit, you are feeling nervous about it? I mean, it's so beautiful. I think you should be really proud of what you've done.
1: Thank you so much. I am so proud of it and I love it. But it has been like, by far, because this is my fifth book out, It has been the scariest one. Partly, I think, to do with the others are really kind of fully illustrated, like every page is an illustration and there's a little bit of text and bits and bobs that goes along with that. Whereas Be Your Best Self dives a bit deeper on a lot of um, sort of nitty gritty topics and challenges that we all face. And it's more of a read. And in that way, it's like, oh my God, you know, I'm putting out not only some of the stuff that I've been through and what has been in my head, but it's like, here's kind of some of the ways that I work with some of these things. And that feels really like, oh, I'm going to get judged on this. Please like it. (laughs) So that little part of me comes up, you know, that like imposter syndrome and all of that Mm -hmm. has popped up around this book, which is super ironic.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to chat through that, but it's it's kind of interesting because usually when you're seeing a counselor or a therapist, you know, they're they're not really bringing up their stuff. It's all about what you're going through and it's the impartial. So for you, is it a bit, I mean, you're obviously an open person and, and your work, you know, work these days isn't always linear that we do this and it looks like this and now you have, you know, you're an author, you've got your books, but do you find it it's a shift for you from perhaps your other books where you were giving bits of advice and perhaps in your work where you're giving advice and listening to actually then having to flip and like share the insights behind the therapist, I guess?
1: Yeah I kind of I always split those pieces of me almost like I'll share some of my personal side of things and my own experience in certain contexts and keep that out a bit more in others and I guess therapy or one-on-one coaching is one of the places where I'm much more mindful about how much of it comes in or when because it is so important that it's like we're not overburdening someone else with our story or just telling it because oh hey i've been through this too so it's finding that that balance but i have also found that uh, the response around when i do share parts not in one-on-one but to the wider audience it makes people feel validated and normal and it's like oh okay this is a thing you know other people go through this too because often for others that's a real hidden part or a shame part exile it to the shadows you know and I think it's um could be quite useful to bring that out into the light
2: no totally I think yeah it's one thing to share advice but then little bits of sort of I guess relatable personal experiences yeah people feel seen and that's what do they say like vulnerability makes everyone closer together right but <laughs> yeah so it's brave to be vulnerable and put yourself out there you mentioned you know the imposter syndrome which I know probably is a bit different as well. It kind of links in with the inner critic, but talk to us about that because it's something that I know a lot of us, probably everyone struggles with, but some more than others perhaps.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think everyone has an inner critic. I think just some of us, you know, their one has like a megaphone and it's just always there. Um, So this inner critic is one of the things we talk about in the book and we all have one, but it's important to realise that it's it's kind of ultimately not your core self, it's not you and it's often not true. It's not feeding you information that is useful or true. And it comes from kind of us internalizing messages that we hear from people in our lives across the years. So it could be from words that bullies said or criticisms from parents or being embarrassed by a teacher in school and also just kind of actually looking at how other people are so you might have had a mum who was always dieting always talking about her body and the size pants she was in or you know a dad who was always worrying and doing that outwardly and all of those things teach our inner critic basically how we're going to start to speak to ourselves um so we all have one and it is a really really normal thing but i think sometimes they just get in the driver's seat and they really take over and that's where we got to jump in and do some of that work around kind of we can accept that this is a part of us and maybe you've served a purpose in the past for someone kind of trying to protect me from something but right now you can hop in the back seat because you're not needed
2: yeah and something which in your book you talk about is you know unhelpful thinking styles and from the inner critic stuff you know thoughts are not facts and that's something a lot of the time I don't know. It took me a long time. I remember everyone's different, but being younger and sort of thinking that everything everyone said was true. And I would Mm. internalize a lot of that stuff and think, oh, well, I am that. If people, you know, people would say things or if you got bullied or whatever, you'd think everything was true. So then even as an adult, sometimes the thoughts you have realizing that they're not always true, they're not always facts and you shouldn't believe everything you think. It is hard to separate that sometimes.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's like m- most of us don't know how to do that initially, and we have to kind of develop this like filtration system, don't we? Of like, this is the stuff that's relevant, this is what I want to take on and believe, and that we actually can filter out the stuff that isn't useful and we can decide not to take on board something that someone says. I was exactly the same, like, if I received criticism for anything in my life it it massively impacted the way that i saw myself it did not occur to me that i could put that aside or i could say that's actually about you you know that's Mm -hmm. your that's a you problem or this is just your opinion um and that that can also come from kind of a lifetime of of people pleasing or or being really attuned to others emotions it's like we kind of forget about our own needs and wants and just really kind of absorb everything around us so it's definitely a skill takes a long time to learn
2: yeah what are some of we'll go through some strategies soon but what are some unhelpful thinking styles and I know you do you've got these beautiful little pictures in the book to display this so what are some of those
1: So there's lots of them. Things like um, catastrophizing is one, and that's one that worries and anxiety loves to do. And it's not to say that in a shaming way, like, oh, you're making a big deal out of it. But our thoughts do that. We think of things in extremes. Um, And we also do a lot of filtering. So that's when we kind of filter out all of maybe the positive things we hear about ourselves and we latch on to anything that's negative. And that really fills in with our um, confirmation bias. So we actually look for information that supports like, oh, we're not a good person or or we're anxious or we're awkward. We find that information. So things like that. We also do a lot of personalization as another um, thinking style many of us get get stuck in. And that's when we kind of assume that um, maybe someone else's mood is about us. Uh, or uh, you know, if I honestly have
2: done that so much like for my you? whole life yeah. yeah being like quite empathetic and sort of re- picking up on people's moods and everything and always thinking it was my fault or I'd done something wrong and then having to learn about that yeah yeah,
1: yeah. I think that comes with um the territory of either being like kind of a people pleaser or even an empath or a mm. like a highly sensitive person is that attunement and sometimes that's just something we have for other people that can be linked to past traumas and we get stuck in something called a fawn response where we're actually constantly having to scan others and get a read on like how they're feeling and how we're landing with them. And we're constantly adjusting our own behaviors to keep other people happy. And, um, so yeah, personalization as a thinking style fits that one big time. Another really common thinking style is shooting. When you should on yourself or you should on others, it's like they shouldn't have done that. I should be doing this differently. He should know that. And they should know that I want this. And so there's so many different ones. It's not about finding it and going, oh my God, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm doing this again for goodness sake, doubling down on the way we feel. But it's just about going, oh, hey, there's that again. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, that's popping up. What's this about? What's what's happening here and what would be a different way of kind of looking at it. So doing that with a lot of curiosity and compassion.
2: So what are some ways that we can challenge our unhelpful thinking styles?
1: So I always think about this in two different kind of directions. And one is we can take that kind of brain-based approach of actually challenging the thought. So you might write it down, you might ask yourself a bunch of questions like, you know, is this a fact or an opinion? What else could be true here? What's more realistic? What's more helpful? Where does this come from? You know, we can go into that and kind of rewrite the thought into something that is realistic and more helpful. Some people gel with that really, really well. And that that works and it helps them just to begin to sort of shift um, into more strength-based or just more compassionate thinking. The other path um, that can be really useful is, is more of a, like a mindful acceptance approach where we kind of come to just observe that these things are coming up. We can kind of witness them without judgment, without trying to change them or fix them, just to simply kind of notice them and try to create a little bit of space between us and the thought. So instead of, I have the thought, and now I feel crap and now I'm acting on the thought. We just sit for a moment and notice it, notice the emotion that comes up around it. We don't need to buy in. Um, and I use lots of different, like funny little analogies as to how we could describe those thoughts, you know, like we think of them like, um, you know, infomercials that pop up, you know, when something pops up and some woman's trying to sell you like a crazy can opener and we kind of mute the TV or whatever. Our unhelpful thoughts are a lot like those infomercials that pop up, and that they don't really help us. We don't have to buy into them. We can kind of just turn the volume down on them we don't they don't need our attention any more than that infomercial does, so that's more of that kind of mindful based approach, which I quite like,
2: yeah, that's really good advice, and obviously, these things you just need to keep trying and practicing you know when you have these thoughts or uh, you know using those strategies you just mentioned now have you seen in your experience if these thoughts like I know for myself I'm so hard on myself I actually got diagnosed with ADHD last year and so for me I never thought I had it because I'm from a family of of people with ADHD but mine looked different whereas I learned that the stuff about being hard on yourself you know the the it was called concept of self the psychiatrist said and you know the being really like everything I do even though it's good I'll think it's it's bad and I'm a failure Mm. and I know a lot of people will struggle with that but it was actually so hard it made things awful you know I do something good and I couldn't enjoy it because I just felt so much so Mm. you know through trying these things do you think you can actually almost like reprogram that because I have found that mine has got a bit better but is it just something sometimes you are born with and it's just like trying to get rid of it or you know like work on it?
1: I definitely think you can reprogram these things. Um, the way that I approach it is almost a little bit different when it comes to something like that that kind of piques my pricks my ears up and I think you know this is is a, is a part like a protection part of us that just keeps popping up and coming back and that protection part might be like a jealous part or a comparison part or a worry part or your one might be quite perfectionist, you know, like mm. it's hard on you, those inner critic parts. And I wonder sometimes about, is it more useful instead of trying to constantly resist them and mm. exile them and we hate them and we just want them gone. I want, and then they keep coming back of course, yeah. right? Cause whatever we resist just persists. It's doing something there that's like a protective mechanism. So it, it kind of, it's really habitual when it's in that way. Like we, it was almost not conscious. It just pops up completely out of the blue often. And it's a real subconscious driver. And in that case, quite often, there's just something we need to resolve at a different level. It's like often an old, old pattern, maybe from childhood, maybe from being in some kind of traumatic, going through something that was traumatic. And it's like these parts of us develop in order to protect us and to keep us safe. And initially, maybe they did a good job and they did that. But now when they pop up, they are not helpful anymore. They're harmful, if anything. And so I think that sometimes turning towards those parts and getting to know them, understanding what it is that they want, that they're trying to do, that what they're trying to protect us from. And then even integrating them with um, like some nervous system Kind of regulation as well can sometimes begin to soften them. So we kind of then develop a a new pattern, like a new way of relating, and we no longer need that part to come on board and try to save the day all the time. We can just notice it and yeah, keep it in the in the back seat. But I think many of us are so like, I want it gone now. You know, like get rid of it. Why isn't something working straight away? But it's been there for years, years and years and years, and maybe it's also quite subconscious like there's actually a part of your nervous system that switches on, that brings these things mm. to the foreground. So a lot of it is having to really get in, like how do we tap into those unconscious areas? So, so for a lot of people, the missing piece is doing body-based stuff mm. or nervous system kind of regulation, or the missing piece is just a bit more compassion, you know, like, Oh, hello again. <laughs> in a critic, like, <laughs> a lovely yeah. way to see you. No, you're okay. We don't need you now. <laughs> Still to come, we dive
2: into ways to soothe our nervous systems and how to cope with procrastination and how our brains play sneaky tricks on us and more practical strategies to improve our mental health. We'll be back after a quick break.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: You do touch on this in the book and you've mentioned it now. What are some ways that we can soothe our nervous system as you've mentioned?
1: So um, one of the things is by beginning to develop some awareness of all the different nervous system states in the first place. So just starting to know what is fight, what is flight, what is freeze and what is fawn and, and how do they show up for me and what do I tend to do when they show up? And so then once we can do that we kind of need to develop that language and that kind of relationship that connection between brain and body i think so many of us just phase that out so just beginning to recognize what's happening and then we can just do subtle practices to soothe those things so one of the direct ways to connect to the nervous system and to switch on that parasympathetic rest digest is through breath work obviously you know like getting deep down belly kind of diaphragmatic breathing there's also things like different types of cold exposure can be really um, useful like i'll often go and sort of splash my face in in cold water (laughs) um certain postures help regulate so like coming into a child's pose or something like that when you're feeling kind of really overwhelmed and anxious and a lot of the time when it comes to that stress anxiety anger side Before we kind of calm, we also need to like, we call it like complete the stress cycle. So we kind of need to get those stress hormones out. So sometimes that is like going for a run or shaking your body or doing something like that and then coming into, you know, some some breath work or some nice yin yoga or something like that.
2: Yeah, and it's so good knowing these strategies. And we, you know, if you are someone that struggles with anxiety or just anyone can experience these emotions as well, it's really good to know but at the same time when you were in that first moment it's even though you know all these things you can do I it, perhaps it's the freeze thing where you're like oh like I can't like what am I gonna do and then you start it, hopefully you've got a toolkit which I've um, shared on on podcast before where you've got a toolkit of things you can start doing but yeah it can be really hard in that moment even though you know all the things you've learned and you try tried just to you sort of do freeze and you're just like oh feeling that intense feeling
1: it's so hard and you just get, you just get hijacked by it. And in those moments as well, I guess to like give yourself a bit of compassion because your thinking brain goes offline when you are really, really anxious or when you do get really overwhelmed by, by stress. So if you go into that place in the nervous system, you're also more in your emotional brain, the limbic system. So we just like lose it. we just like, what what are we meant to do in these moments? And often we do just instantly revert back. To old patterns old kind of unhelpful strategies or you know trying to fight the anxiety push it away fix it all of those approaches that actually make it worse mm. so a bit a part of it is not just having like a toolkit for when you're anxious or in the moment but developing lots of practices that are, you do when you're calm I, I always say like practice in the calm to access in the chaos because mm. if it's not there if it's not already a pathway in your brain really hard to to do to call on in that actual moment of the panic and bite-sized pieces you know like yeah. I'm not saying that you have to sit down and meditate for an hour every day like oh my god like I'm you know I have a three and a half year old like my mindfulness is trying to go to the toilet by myself
2: <laughs> brushing but, you your know, teeth what,
1: in peace yeah. <laughs> I know it's like come on but we can just find these I always like micro moments and that's a bit of the, like quite a lot of the stuff I do with the online um, work and in the membership and stuff is we just do lots of little micro practices and introduce ways that you can kind of find it but not have to spend an hour doing something really intense. Yeah, Yeah,
2: because that is one thing about self-care and, you know, people... Through doing this podcast nearly five years now and, you know, through your work, people will often think, you know, oh, I don't have time to do that. And it's all about making it accessible. Like self-care doesn't have to take a lot of time. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's not always going for a massage or whatever. There's little things you can do throughout your day. And I guess for a lot of people who do have busy lives, they are parents, you know. So I guess it's not challenging those thoughts, but showing like, yeah, like that must be hard, but there's definite ways that we can you know, like you say, little micro moments throughout the day, right? Rather than thinking that it needs to be this hour-long practice, or I have to do that, like it just makes it to, I guess you're just setting yourself up for failure, because you just can't achieve that all the time.
1: A hundred percent, yeah. And often it's even like, yes, we can introduce new things, but we can also just make tweaks to what we're already doing. I think for a lot of people with anxiety, for example, the morning is, A bit of a shit show. Like you wake up, you scan for anxiety, you find it,
0: you know. How are we feeling today?
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, we're anxious again, Great. great. We'll run into the kitchen. You're like having a coffee straight away. Maybe you don't eat. Maybe you do and you eat standing. You're also doing your blooming texts or you're scrolling, doom scrolling at the same time. Like a lot of the way that we end up playing out things in our life is so go, 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 like Mm. perfectionism, achievement, do two things at a time. Mm. That actually sends your whole body into flight response. Like that's sympathetic nervous system energy from the get-go. So, you know, what would it be like just to swivel out of bed and take three belly breaths before I put my feet on the floor? Like what would it be like to have breakfast, like overnight oats ready, Mm. to not have coffee and to have tea or have a herbal and see like just such small switches what about not doom scrolling straight away you know just tiny things we can do
2: yeah, totally. I'm on a bit of uh, sort of, I guess, a tweaking of my habits at the moment and trying to get up earlier. And yeah, I was the coffee. I got into this habit of having coffee first thing, but then I noticed that like my cortisol, my hormones, I just wasn't, I've, yeah. I I sort of have done a bit of work on that in the past. It wasn't good. So I've just stopped having it as early. And honestly, it just makes such a difference. You think you can't cope without it, but you can, and it just makes you feel a lot better. And it, yeah, just trying to not it's so hard when we, like, I feel like all of us have phone addictions these days to whatever level, trying not yeah. to spend that time in the morning. I heard something where it's like, why are you giving that time to, to everyone else's lives and you're not focusing on, you know, your own life and setting up your morning and your day for a good day, you know, you're giving it away to everyone else
1: so true such a good way to look at it and all of those things just like when you wake up in the morning obviously that's peak cortisol because it's it's supposed to be there it's like ah, let's get you up Mm. and moving like thanks very much but it's also like let's add coffee and then you know screen time and doing two Mm. things at once and so the cortisol just goes through the roof it's just it sets up the whole day for kind of a cascade of chronic (laughs) stress and anxiety so you know I love that you've made those little changes for yourself and it is possible
2: yeah, and learning like even things like I'm trying not to like snooze your alarm because there was science behind it that if you do that, you're literally stuffing up the first four hours of your day because it sends your body into the state where it thinks it's going back to sleep, and then yeah, the first four da- four hours of your day are absolutely screwed. So it is hard not to snooze, especially if you you know you're not getting a lot of sleep, you're a mom or whatever. But just trying to tweak those things a little bit and try to get to bed earlier. It's 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 so hard to juggle all the things and feel like you're. But you can only try your best, yeah.
1: It is so hard. And I, I think it's a nice way of just starting to show up for yourself, like just to stick to little commitments, little promises that you make. So if you say, I'm going to go to bed at 10 and I'm going to get up at this time, and then we don't do those things, we're kind of just constantly giving ourselves the feedback, like I'm not really going to show up for me. like, And if I've got a, a need, I'm probably gonna ignore it or you know if I promise something to myself it's like it's just self boundaries isn't Mm. it we always think of boundaries outwardly with other people but it's actually often with ourselves that we struggle the most when it comes to boundaries
2: do you see a lot of people do that as well and like is that a form of self-sabotage when we you know, we know we need to go to sleep. You know, you hear about revenge bedtime procrastination. And, and yeah. because you, ha- or if it's because you've been at work all day and you don't feel like you've had time to yourself, or your kids have been like literally hanging on your ankles all day or whatever. And then at nighttime, when you need to really take that time for yourself, instead of going to bed when you know you need to so that you can get enough sleep to cope the next day, you know, you stay up doom scrolling, you're in a TikTok hole. before you know it. Is that a form of
1: self? I mean, it's so related, but we all do it, we loll about it. Is that a form of self uh, sabotage? It's definitely an element of that. Like, I very recently was in that space myself. Was even though I, you know, teach about it and stuff, I found myself up till 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I keep saying, I just need some time for just me, not um, serving other people, not mumming. I just want to, just want to do this. And what this was was back to back, like binge watching Netflix, you know, like just doing really kind of mindless stuff that it feels like it's soothing your nervous system, but it's actually not, it's distracting you from your stress, but it just sits there waiting. And so at the end, then I can get to sleep at night. And I keep saying to myself, but I have to do this because I've got no other time for me but I had time, I had four hours of binge watching things, that's four hours of time, you know, so I I recently switched that and now it's like if you end up doing some little different little practices like a yoga session or reading a book instead or having a herbal tea or going for a walk, suddenly all of this time opens up and you can sort of start to see the little shifts happening, like feeling better, sleeping better and I think then it helps us to kind of get that self-sabotage out the way but I see that as the inner critic playing a part in self-sabotage so it it goes oh just just watch one more episode you know like (laughs) we deserve it it's yeah it's been a day and so oh yeah okay and then at the end you go you are so lazy you never do anything like you blah 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 that's actually the inner critic so Mm. it's it's not even you doing like self-care it's your inner critic coaxing you into behaviors so that it can then slam you for it when you finish them
2: yeah and we can be our own worst enemy because we know like I've been making a real effort to get to bed earlier because sometimes I do have struggles uh sleeping so and I was in a really good patch and then it was the weekend so you're like I'm gonna be naughty and stay up late even though like you can it's the weekend or whatever (laughs) and then come you know the week you're like why did I do that to myself it can stuff up your week a little bit and even though you know better it's almost like you're your own worst enemy and you'll do it anyway so what's what's that about? Like, why do we do things? Like, why do we do that when we know we shouldn't?
1: It's our pesky little brain's obsession with instant rewards and, and dopamine. And it always wants to choose the path that it knows the best. So like whatever it's done a lot of, which is usually like bad habits. Um, and it wants to choose the thing that gives it that little hit. And so it knows, that like your brain knows, like the thing that would be good for me, is probably actually something that doesn't feel good right now but will be good in the long term like having an early night like having a herbal tea instead of a coffee in the morning those types of things right but because it's a longer term gain, the brain wants to do the thing that gets the instant hit the instant reward and it wants to stay in its little pathway so it's almost like we have to get one up on our brain and recognize it's going to want to do this recognize it wants to fall into the familiar which feels safe and comfortable even if it's damaging and then see if we can you really kind of intentionally and purposefully bring ourselves over to the thing that gives us the more long-term gain and maybe we have to do that with like little rewards for ourselves I think we kind of need to get like you know enforce those pathways like if I do this for a week then I'm allowed to do x y and z at the end of it or something we need to link it somehow
2: how can we have some little better habits like for yourself when you know you were watching Netflix binging and it was your time how did you stop doing that sometimes you're like yeah I'm just going to stop but it's not always we don't always have that kind of like it's not that easy how do you do it?
1: One of the tools I use is um, like I think of fives. So it'll be um, either if I have a thought, uh, I should do like a little yoga flow or I should do it. I should read my book instead of binge watching something. I act act on that thought in some really concrete way within five seconds. So if it's the yoga thing, like quickly stand up and grab the mat and just start pulling a video up. And during that time, your brain's probably going, ah, no, I actually want to binge watch. Like, don't. But if we can just get some action going, action builds motivation. So motivation doesn't come first. It just doesn't. We have to start the action piece first. Or I might say, just five minutes. So another five. I'll say, I'm just going to do five minutes where I sit with a cup of tea. Five minutes of reading. Five minutes of something. And then usually, again, it's built enough momentum that I'll keep going or I might say just five things so if I've decided the house is an absolute state I'll say just pick up five things that's it and again the momentum starts so that's kind of one of the ways I'll get started on a more helpful habit is using action before motivation and then I'll also try to just link them into existing habits so like if I've I always brush my teeth every morning, right? So maybe I link a breath practice into that or, you know, I always have a morning cup of tea. So I'll read a book with that instead of scrolling. So you're just trying to like attach mm. it to something that's already an ingrained pathway. I can't tell you how many people I've, I've, so you have to do your breath work while you're on the toilet. Like every time you're on the <laughs> yeah. toilet, take 10 deep breaths they're like oh god okay but you know it's one of the times that we're always going to get to ourselves. Well, Hope more, hopefully unless you've got a toddler
2: <laughs> yeah you did talk about perfectionism before and I want to talk about the link with perfectionism and procrastination because I didn't realize that you know often the reason a lot of the time you're procrastinating is and I know for myself it's that perfectionism and it kind of like almost You get the fear and you get like you get stunted like a paralysis where you're like, oh, it's got to be perfect. And and so it kind of and then actually that creates more self-loathing, which makes you feel worse about yourself.
1: Yeah, there is a really strong link with procrastination and, and perfectionism. And what you said is so true is that with perfectionism, it's often quite fear based. There's this fear of being seen or being judged or not being accepted or of not having control. And so that really leads us into procrastination because that seems really overwhelming and scary. How can we possibly get something perfect? And so as soon as it becomes fear-based or overwhelming, we're gonna procrastinate doing that thing. So many people procrastinate as well. And it's not usually got anything to do with laziness. You know, it is usually to do with overwhelm your nervous system perfectionism fear-based things so it's like you've got to tap into what's kind of driving it um and then try to address those pieces of yourself I I always have to tell myself that like you know action before motivation like Mm. I can't just sit here and wait for it to come because it isn't it's just not going to come and I will always find something that seems more important to do than the thing that I'm meant to be doing you know and that's our brains again like I don't know if you've had this. You like, you know, you need to organise, you know, um, like this big project for work or something, and then you somehow find yourself in the garage looking at photos from 1994, and you're like, <laughs> "What just happened?" You know, <laughs> but your brain just wants to do the thing that feels more more comfortable. Yeah, it is about sitting with the discomfort. Action before motivation. Maybe using those kind of five 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 type rules, and then with perfectionism, what I will usually get people to do as well is begin to do things imperfectly on purpose Mm. and to sit with the discomfort of that. So, um, you know, that might look like baking um, a cake without a recipe and it comes out hideous and we do it on purpose and we just sit with that. Or it might look like painting something with your elbows or I don't know, you know, just whatever, like putting odd pegs on the washing line. I don't know, it depends on your level of perfectionism. I had one client who, said her thing was she left a cup in the sink and she left her pillows unfluffed on her couch. And that was a big step for her. That was how, you know, strong that control piece was Mm. for her. And that was actually linked to old traumas around needing control. It can be about working on actually what's the driver behind it, working on the real deeper stuff as well as just gently challenging, like it's actually okay to do things messy and I won't die.
2: I think for a lot of us you'll think it has to be perfect from the get-go, but that's not how it works. You just gotta get say it's like writing a book, getting words out there, you know, for an example. Like it doesn't you're not gonna have the finished product when you first write it, but sometimes that might be the mentality that you have, which then stops you from doing and, and acting. But yeah, just like you said, those those are really good tips for for challenging that and just getting started anyway. And and is okay. Like you can fix it up. It doesn't have to be like an amazing you know, painting at the beginning, like a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, exactly. I can feel my perfectionist come up every time I pick this book up. Like I look through it and I'm like, oh, I wish I had said this or I kind of wish this. And But then I often think, you know, it's, it's actually better. It's just better done mm. and out there in the world than still trying to get it perfect and it's sitting on my computer in three years' time, you know. So we just have to sit with it.
2: Yeah, what they say done is better than perfect, right? It's like
1: Yeah, I like that.
2: What is a highly sensitive person? Because I feel like everyone probably thinks they are a highly sensitive person because we're all sensitive people out
1: there, but what is it? <laughs> yeah. So it's not like a diagnosis or anything. It's just kind of a set of personality traits and I think about somewhere around 30% of people are highly sensitive people. And often it's um your there's an empathic piece to it so it's kind of your ability um to attune to what other people are thinking and what they might be feeling and kind of the vibe of the room and in that sense when you like scan the brain of someone who's an hsp versus someone who doesn't consider themselves that way you see like a lot more um activation and all the mirror neurons in an hsp's brain so we literally feel kind of what other people feel and like it lights up all these kind of emotional mirror neurons in our brains and it's also there's an aspect of um highly sensitive people that it's quite sensory so you you might get kind of overloaded easily with you know mine is if there's a tag on my clothing or if the extractor fan's on for ages while I'm cooking and then that gets turned off, it's like this sudden, oh, feeling like those sort of, we can get kind of, you know, stimulated really easily. A
2: lot of these things all, I guess, are linked. What about with people pleasing? And and there's a whole chapter in here and I, again, we're going to have to get you on again because it's just, I look at all these chapters and I want to go through so many things, but there's no point trying to not do it all properly and you may as well spread it out. but. <laughs> Talk to us about people pleasing because I feel like a lot of that's linked in with, you know, the inner critic, the perfectionism thing, HSP, like the unhelpful thoughts. So talk to us about people pleasing because honestly, I feel, I mean, I don't want to like say it's a gender specific thing because people, whatever they are, do it or whoever they are. But I think with women, especially, I Mm -hmm. guess historically we've been raised to be people pleasers a lot.
1: Yeah, there is that, there definitely is that component. I work with so many women who consider themselves people pleasers. There's like lots of different reasons why it comes about. And for some people, it comes about through like a foreign response or past traumas, or it might have just come about you've been bullied a lot in school, or you've been in like a toxic work environment, or maybe you grew up around parents who were, You know, one minute they're angry, next minute they're withdrawn. And so we really attune to how other people are feeling. And then we also start to kind of really link our own sense of kind of worth to pleasing other people or what other people think about us. And it becomes something we're really preoccupied by is thinking anyone else's emotions are about us and really internalizing the things that, that other people say about us that it's such a common thing and gosh you know if you feel like this is you you're really you're not alone but it is hard because it does result in you putting aside your own kind of needs and often having real trouble with boundaries and things like that but the beauty is it can be healed from you know we don't have to live a life that is dictated by how everyone else around us is acting and perceiving us
2: what are some things people could take away from this conversation you know start just to work on um in terms of if they do struggle with people pleasing and they are like you said you know putting the needs of everyone else first which as women, mothers, men as well, I, again, I don't want to gender this at all because I feel like everyone can experience things, but you know, there's often a perception that you're meant to put everyone else first and mum's meant to put her kids first and of course they care for them, but you need to put yourself as a high priority as well because otherwise you're just no good to anybody and and it's just challenging that perception because I think sometimes when you do set those boundaries or you are not people pleasing as much a lot of people around you don't like it because they're benefiting from you not having good boundaries or that self-love for yourself
1: so true I think that's probably the hardest part of the journey like it might start out with just starting to get to know when that part of you comes up and recognize, Oh, okay. You know, that's my people pleaser part. I know where this is coming from. I'm kind of trying to mind read here and imagine what she's thinking, or I'm, you know, I'm doing this and just first noticing it, sitting with it, taking a pause before you react, thinking about what do I want? What do I need? Mm. But the hardest part when you follow through, And you maybe begin to put yourself first or you begin to put boundaries in place is the feeling you get at the end initially feels like guilt and it feels so uncomfortable and maybe yeah maybe it rocks a couple of relationships a little bit when you start to put boundaries in place and so that's that's really hard and it makes you want to just retreat back to the safety of people pleasing so you kind of almost want to get someone alongside you to support you in that but to to remember that a little bit of discomfort is sometimes a really good thing. Like sometimes it's a a signal that you are changing for the better. And we just need to sit with some of that, but continue to sort of put our needs out there get to know what our needs even are, Mm. you know, put our boundaries out there, take those, those pauses. And before you say yes to someone all the time, you know, I like saying like, when you say yes to someone else, often, saying no to yourself so we can flip that when you do say no to someone else it means you get to say yes to you and just like you said before it's it's actually really important that we kind of have a topped up cup ourselves like a lot of people think it's just other people's needs matter more or their whole identity gets wrapped up in being the helper the fixer the family therapist you know all of that but how can you even serve others if you're depleted You know, so even if your motivation is still to serve others, you have to top up your own cup to be of use to anyone.
2: I guess it's challenging that perception that it's selfish to do that and that, you know, some people might think that self-love, self-care is selfish, but it's not. Like we're here to bust that. So talk to us before we wrap up, talk to us a bit about self-love and self-care, which are so linked. How does self-love and self-care help you in your overall mental well-being?
1: The thing that I guess I'd come back to, like over and over again, is that if we could just foster some more self compassion, there's so much in life that would be easier for us. We torment ourselves, we double down on our own emo- emotions, we're so hard on ourselves, but you're stuck with you for the rest of your life. And so I think it's really worth doing the work of looking after yourself and just. I often like this idea of like, just treat yourself how you would treat a small child. If they're crying, we don't tell them like, well, we hopefully don't tell them like, get on with it, stop it, there's nothing to cry about, move on, but we do that to ourselves. We're like, you know, push forward. And so if we could just start to treat ourselves a little bit more like we would treat little kids, you can develop a lot of self-love and self-compassion through that lens of actually I deserve to be treated in this way I would treat others like this I show compassion to others so I deserve to to show that to myself and I think when there's a bit of curiosity and a bit of compassion around our struggles we just create this huge gap this huge space between you know an emotion and a reaction so that we start to have that ability just to respond and to come from a different place and to form new patterns if we can just bring in that curiosity that compassion
2: yeah I love that and we do talk a lot about self-care obviously what are some of your you've mentioned some throughout this conversation but what are some of your go-to self-care practices
1: so movement is a, a big one some form of movement so whether sometimes that is going off to an actual pilates or yoga class or something like that sometimes it's just cranking some music and just shaking my body around at home but movement is a really integral part i try to be really mindful about nourishing food i can't drink coffee otherwise i get the zoomies like it's no good for my anxiety so it's like subtle kind of nutritional um switches for for my self-care and then i just do bite-sized stuff that's my big thing is like bite-sized mindfulness or bite-sized practices um so that might just be a tiny bit of breathing while I'm in the car driving somewhere or so you know for me self-care isn't face masks and massages and things like that it's just really practical stuff and it's also the way that I try to make a commitment to how I talk to myself in my own mind.
2: Yeah I love that and especially you know like you mentioned at the beginning there's so much uncertainty there's so many horrible things happening around us and so I guess if you can take care of yourself in that way. And it's not selfish to do that, perhaps, because it is hard. We like I feel like a lot of people are living in a heightened state of anxiety. And while you feel almost a little bit bad because when something's happened, you're not majorly affected, but you know, looking around you, you still we're a little bit on edge. I think a lot of people are over the last yeah. few years. So I guess tapping into those things where you can, does that really help you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And on that, like, also, we have to be flexible with it. So, if you're really struggling and things are really, really tough and it is really hard, your self care is probably going to look different than how it is when things are all hunky dory. You know, so a typical day in a life where you're really happy might look like a walk and yoga and an amazing meal that you cook and we're doing all these things. And that's probably what you see posted Mm. is how this is what I do for my self care. Self care also looks like. Staying in bed all day, feeling like utter crap, but brushing your teeth mm. or having a cup of tea, or it looks like just doing one kind thing for yourself. So we we really have to be mindful of that. Like when things are heightened, well, yes, we need more self-care, but also be kind to yourself that, that that's going to look different on a day-to-day basis.
2: Rebecca, Bex, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, if you're keen, I would love to have you back on because... There's just so much more to talk about. And I love your book. I'm reading it at at nighttime now instead of
1: the doom scrolling,
2: instead of getting (laughs) getting stuck in uh, TikTok holes or binging on Netflix. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me.
2: That's all we've got time for. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Club. Find and follow us on Instagram at selfloveclubpodcast where you can watch videos of this conversation and keep up with our content. I'm at Bell Crawford, Bell underscore Crawford on TikTok, and you can join our private Facebook group. All the details for these are in the show notes. One of the most helpful ways you can support us is to subscribe or follow on your podcast app and select automatic downloads. Leave us a five-star rating, and if you're enjoying listening, write us a kind review. This helps others find us and also helps us out in the charts. Plus, send the link to a friend, someone who you think will enjoy listening, and you can tag us in your Instagram stories, show us where you're listening. New episodes are released every Monday, available from 5am New Zealand time. I'll catch you soon. Ellie. the most.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag, say hello to Quince.